In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. We're heading toward Canal Street. We're at Hester Street. Alan Michelson walks along a busy New York City sidewalk of a neighborhood he knows well. Chinatown in Lower Manhattan. You can see this uh, Chinese architecture and establishments all up and down Canal Street. Canal Street, famous for its bargain buys, this street stretches from near the Hudson River to East Broadway and borders several Manhattan neighborhoods. Canal Street serves as the main drag in Chinatown. But before the concrete, before the stores and the bustling tourists, lay an actual canal created from a water source where indigenous people gathered. It's a piece of buried history of the people who lived here before, the Lenape. When they drained the pond, they drained it through the stream that led from the pond to the Hudson. And they shaped it into a canal, and it soon became a stinking mess, just like everything else connected with it. And so they eventually um, filled it in and called it Canal Street. Certainly the Lenape name for it is lost. I don't know if the Colonials had a name for it before they canalized it, but um, that's what it is now. It's the remains of that history. This Manhattan-based Mohawk artist is uncovering that history. Through his work, Alan makes the invisible visible. In this case, reclaiming New York City as Lenape Hoking. Dante Anin Buju. Hello and welcome. This is Unreserved. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. New York City is the ancestral homeland of the Lenape. The name Manhattan comes from the Lenape word Manahata which means the place where we get the wood to make the bows. The Lenape were violently displaced and erased over the course of 400 years, but the city is still their home. I see it all as, you know, Lenape Hoking. It never stopped being Lenape Hoking. I really love New York as it is, but I, I can't help but think of it as it was. Today, New York City has one of the largest urban populations of indigenous people in the United States. Many of them connect in this tucked away community center. We service about 72 different Native American tribes, and that's just a small sliver of the tribes that are represented in New York City. And that iconic skyline, the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, Rockefeller Center. Indigenous iron workers helped build that. The buildings that exist in New York City and other major urban skylines only exist because of the presence of indigenous peoples. 
New York City. It's our first stop in an occasional series we're calling Unmapped. We'll visit iconic destinations around Turtle Island, heck, maybe even the world, with indigenous people as our guides. Today, returning songs, skylines, and space in the homeland of the Lenape people. Before New York was known as New York, it was called New Amsterdam. Before that, New Netherland. And before that, Manahatta, where the predominant tribe was Lenape. Lenape composer Brent Michael Davids reveals this origin story through his music. Brent has performed around the world, including New York City, at venues like Carnegie Hall, the Joyce Theatre and Lincoln Centre. Brent is Muncie Lenape and Mohican. He's enrolled in the Stockbridge Muncie community. He's also co-director of Lenape Centre. Brent, welcome to Unreserved. Hey, welcome. Uh, now the song we're hearing is called Lenape Hoking. What does Lenape Hoking mean? It means uh, Lenape Homeland. Actually, my co-directors inspired me to write this Lenape Hoking song. We were thinking, you know, what would it be like for a Lenape person to come back to the city? The catchphrase is, uh, Lenape Hoking is right where I am. That's sort of the hook of the song. And it functions, you know, for Lenape people anywhere. Like, the, you know, Lenape Hoking is right where I am. It's our homeland. But also, it, it's good for anybody who's visiting New York or the, the whole Pennsylvania, New Jersey, you know, Connecticut areas that were Lenape Hoking, they can sing the song too. And it means the same thing. Lenape Hoking is right where I am because physically that's where they would be right there at that moment. So the lyrics sort of do dual duty. But um, all the verses and the chorus have all meanings like come hear the drums of the stomp dance. You know, Lenape people are stomp dancers. And you can hear all the languages spoken in a contemporary way. Like you can hear any language from around the world you can hear in New York City, but you can also imagine Lenape, Unami, and Muncie languages and Mohican languages starting to show themselves again in the city. And what it would be like if you're walking along the street and hearing all these different languages like leaves rustling and you're hearing a little Russian, hearing some Lenape, hearing, you know, all these other languages, just walking along the street and you know, you can bring the history with you, along with you, and also think about what's going to come. Part of the lyrics are counting what lies ahead long ago as of now. So it's like you're skipping through the time periods when you're thinking about all these things. And it's an open secret that everyone sees. Like, if you want to know what Lenape Hoking means, land of the Lenape, or you want to know what Manahata means, there are ways to find out. So it's kind of an open secret. It's it's there, everybody knows Manhattan, but they might not know that it refers to the hickory trees that we used to make bows out of, but you can find out. And then basically the chorus is, I'm not afraid of the future. Uh, it's, it's going to be great for the clan. No signposting, psychosing, or ghosting. You know, no running away and setting up fake plaques and signs. And, uh, you know, Lenape Hoking is right where I am. And then it's the hook. So through these verses and the chorus, um, I was trying to get a feeling of uh, what it would be like to belong in this place. As a past person, 500 years ago, before it was even New York, 
and then in the future as well. Like, what would it be like as you know things progress and we've got all these exciting things going on in the city and the arts and theater and music and everything? We want Lenape people to be a part of that. And can you tell us exactly where the Lenape homeland is in terms of you know geography? Yeah, I mean it's all of Manhattan, a little bit of Long Island, over into Pennsylvania and New Jersey and up into Connecticut. And if you include Mohicans along with Muncie's and Mohicans and Wampanoags, it extends east all the way through Massachusetts to the to the ocean as well. But that big, you know, multiple state area is Lenape Hoking. There's a lyric in your song, not invisible, but no one would notice where Manhattan and always will be. What did you mean by that? Um, that the names are still there, like Manahata. Manahata means the place where we get the wood to make the bows and refers to a hickory tree, a stand of hickory trees uh, on the south part of the island where it was good, you know, hickory was good for bow making. Um, so a lot of people went down there to get bows and the hickory trees are no longer there. So the namesake of Manhattan is no longer there, but the names are still there. So it's not completely invisible, but also invisible. <laughs> like no one would notice it, but it's it's still there. You kind of have to know the history and have some understanding of, you know, Lenape people and indigenous people in, in New York to be able to grasp it. Yeah. I know it, it, there's a lot of history there that um, that people are not aware of, but could you give us a sort of a little, you know, snippet of how the Lenape were pushed out of New York City? Well, it happened over a long time period. I mean, 1609, Henry Hudson came into you know the harbor, his namesake harbor, in the ship called the Half Moon. And it just went on from there. there we were, you know, like anyone who's genocided, really, just pushed away, abused, not considered as people for a long time, as you know, natives across the country were not, you know, and we were diasporaed out to Oklahoma and Wisconsin and Canada. Mm, so much to know. And as someone who carries that knowledge and some of that history, uh, knowing that that is uh, Lenape Hoking, what do you want others to see when, you know, when you're rubbing shoulders with them around the streets of New York? I guess to be aware that there there was an erasure. So that's actually why I joined Lenape Center in Manhattan. Our mission is to help welcome and bring Lenape people back into the city again. And we do it through the arts and education and in working with the museums and the theaters and the arts places in the city, the universities, etc., to try and bring more awareness and also open up a space where the Lenape people from around the country, from the diaspora, can come back to the city and feel like, yeah, this is our this is our home. Brent Michael Davids is a composer and co-director of Lenape Center. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. We'll hear more from Brent and his music later in the show. Right now, let's take a closer look at the Manhattan skyline. You might be familiar with this iconic photo. It's a black and white image of a group of iron workers casually eating lunch while sitting on a steel beam hundreds of feet above New York City. It's called Lunch Atop a Skyscraper. It was taken in 1932 when Rockefeller Plaza was being built. It's become so iconic that tourists can now recreate the photo with themselves in it. 
almost a hundred years after that photo was taken, the identity of some of these men is still a mystery. And that's something Alan Downey set out to solve. Alan is a member of Decathnic Hosliouette First Nation and a professor of history at McMaster University. His research includes the incredible contributions of Indigenous iron workers to the New York City skyline. He's found evidence that suggests that at least one of those men on the beam was Indigenous. Alan, welcome to Unreserved. Well, thank you very much for having me. First of all, what sparked your interest in wanting to solve this mystery of who these men were? As I was researching the history of Indigenous ironworkers, I, of course, come across the most iconic, famous photograph, uh, one of the most iconic photographs in U.S. history, which is lunch atop of a skyscraper. There are these claims that there are in at least one Indigenous person in that photograph. So through my research and talking with families and interviewing families, what we're relatively certain of is that one of the members of this photograph of the 11 ironworkers is actually Peter Rice from Ganawage. Mm. And can you tell me a little bit about who Peter Rice was? Yeah, so Peter Rice uh, was a, a very competent, incredible iron worker that was from Ganawage and is Ganyagahaga or Mohawk. And we know that Peter ended up moving to Little Cognawaga, which is an indigenous neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, of iron workers, sometime in the 1920s, where he was pursuing his livelihood of ironworking. Eventually, his family comes down with him. He also helps support other Indigenous iron workers. And in 1932, when the Rockefeller Center and Rockefeller Plaza is being built, they decide to do a kind of publicity stunt to promote this new building that is the the owners of this building stage a series of photographs. And in these photographs, we believe Peter Rice is, is right in the center of it. Wow, there's a movie in there somewhere, Alan. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, for now, it's going to have to be a book. Um, but uh, maybe we can turn it into a movie one day. Yeah. <laughs> Why was it so important for you to track down the identity of this iron worker? Well, ultimately, it's about what this iron worker represents. What does Peter Rice represent in a sense of uh, these iron workers, these indigenous iron workers? How did they end up in New York City? What are they doing there? And ultimately, it comes down to a story about Indigenous presence and Indigenous modernity. See, in U.S. history, despite the presence, uh, their presence in New York City and other major urban centers throughout North America for more than a century, basically, American popular culture in the 19th and 20th centuries held that these spaces, like New York City and other urban environments, uh, were antithetical to Indigenous existence and largely void of Indigenous presence. But we know that's not true. So this notion of Indigenous absence actually leads generations of scholars and policymakers to relegate kind of Indigenous existence and history to the periphery of these urban sites. And yet here are Indigenous ironworkers who are front and center of building these urban environments and this notion of, quote unquote, American modernity. And so that's been kind of the focus of my research for the the last six years is to kind of place Indigenous peoples at the center of these urban environments, places that they're deemed to be antithetical to. 
Mm, interesting. What are some examples of the buildings that Indigenous people helped build? Yeah, so we know that Indigenous ironworkers have been part of some of the most famous uh, and the, the biggest jobs in New York City and elsewhere across the United States. Um, but this has included things like the Chrysler Building, the Empire State Building, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, the George Washington Bridge, Rockefeller Center, the United Nations Building, uh, the World Trade Center, the original World Trade Center, and eventually the Freedom Tower. And so Indigenous peoples, particularly these Haudenosaunee ironworkers, because it's not just limited to Ginyangahaga or Mohawk ironworkers, there are our other Haudenosaunee citizens there working on these job sites, they've had a, a, a discernible impact on the skyline of New York City and other major urban centers throughout the United States and Canada. Mm, really gives you a different perspective, hey? It, it really does. Um, and ultimately, I think telling this story is significant and important because it can contribute to a regeneration of Indigenous communities. Ultimately, this is not a story just about uh, Indigenous livelihoods, but ultimately it's it, it's a story and a series of stories about Indigenous people's identities, about their self-determination, about their nationhood and sovereignty, and the ways in which they articulate those at different times through various means, such as through Indigenous women becoming nurses in these urban environments, or mm. working in factories, or these Indigenous men that are working on these skyscrapers or even the community connections that they had within these urban environments. Mm. Speaking of, of community and building community, they literally built a community. A, a neighborhood presence was created by these Mohawk workers that you mentioned earlier. Tell me about that. So what ends up happening is as Indigenous iron workers start to, to gravitate towards New York City, in the 1920s, they start to establish themselves in Brooklyn, New York. Well, what ends up happening is not only are these Indigenous men moving to this neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York by the 1920s, um, they're inviting their families to come down. And Indigenous women on their own accord are coming down to kind of plug into the networks that are being established within this community. And that community has is, is been referenced as uh, Little Cognawaga. So it's the anglicized name of Ganawage. Mm -hmm. So within uh, from the late 1920s to into the 1950s, what we see is approximately 700 indigenous Ginyagahaga individuals specifically end up moving into this community. And what ends up happening is this Ginyagahaga community becomes a kind of an extension of what, what it means to be Ginyagahaga. Because they end up going in and building this community in Brooklyn, New York, basically downtown Brooklyn. And there, they continue to share the language. They continue to host and share their ceremonies, their teachings. There's a real point of emphasis uh, placed on teaching Haudenosaunee history to the children within this community. And so it's really, it's this incredible story about how nationhood kind of moved mm -hmm. and became redefined in a new area, a new space. Hmm. When people say, you know, these little communities in New York, I'm thinking like restaurants, I'm thinking schools that are teaching Mohawk culture, I'm thinking signs, like, can you paint me more of a, a picture of what Cognawaga was? Yeah, so in Little Cognawaga, there are a series of kind of hubs that existed within the community that were really important. One was the Presbyterian Church, 
where by 1938, the pastor, Reverend David Corey, ended up learning Ganyagaha, the Mohawk language, and began giving uh, sermons in Ganyagaha because there were just so many Mohawk Ganyagahaga uh, individuals in the community. And so that church served as one hub of Indigenous community activities. They would host events there and dinners there. They would have sermons in Ganyagaha. Um, some of the Sunday school teachers who were Ganyagaha would end up, uh, Ganyagaha, excuse me, Mohawk, would end up teaching the children the language. And so we actually have pictures of uh, the Ganyagaha language on blackboards as they're teaching them during their Sunday school activities. The other two kind of hubs were two taverns that existed in the community. And one was owned by an, a Ganyagaha woman and her husband. Another one uh, was a non-Indigenous owner. And these taverns in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and later really served as these kind of hubs in which um, Indigenous activities were taking place. So you could find out about jobs there. You could find out about places to stay there and community support services. In addition to that, um, very early on, the taverns are known to have the only phones. So individuals would find rides back to Ganawage from there or Akwesasne. And in addition to this, they would pick up their mail or they would be able to call home or receive a call. So the, the Presbyterian church and these taverns really play a critical role in the ways this place becomes really an identifiable indigenous space. It's, it's, it's a pretty incredible story. That is an incredible story. And is this uh, community still there in Brooklyn? What ends up happening is there's a gentrification of, of the community that pushes, you know, blue collar workers out of that area and prices them out. But you can go into this Brooklyn neighborhood and still see the Presbyterian Church still exists. It's still there. It still stands to this day. But it's been turned into apartments. Ah. The kind of brownstone buildings that these Indigenous families lived in are still there. The face of one of the taverns still exists. It's now a salon. So there are still remnants of the community there. But when it comes to actual individuals living as a critical mass there, they've moved elsewhere and moved on. Mm. Still a very fascinating story. And, and now that you've told the world about it, what do you want people to see when they look at the Manhattan skyline? When we look at the New York City skyline, I think it could be a kind of a triggering device to, to recognize the, the contribution and presence of not only Indigenous peoples, but the, the ways in which they articulate their, their identities, their self-determination, uh, their nationhood, and their sovereignty. Ultimately, I make the argument that stories like this that are centered in Indigenous knowledge systems and Indigenous stories and in Indigenous communities, uh, ultimately, I think they can contribute to a, a regeneration of our Indigenous communities. Mm. And when you say a regeneration, what do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, who should know this history? I th well, I think ultimately everyone should know this history. But when I talk about regeneration, what I'm really talking about is this notion of resurgence, a resurgence of our Indigenous languages, a resurgence of our Indigenous governance structures and our knowledge and and understanding of the ways in which families and individuals and communities in the past have articulated their self-determination, nationhood, 
uh, and ultimately sovereignty. As stories like this can further contribute to that regeneration and to that resurgence. Mm. And today, how does the legacy of these indigenous iron workers continue in New York City, or does it? Yes, certainly it does. You have families that tell their history and the stories of growing up in Brooklyn and the significant contributions that these indigenous men made to these various buildings. So um, those buildings still stand. The community networks that were established still exist and still continue. Maybe not so much in inside of those urban environments at various times, but back in Ganawaga and in Akwesasne and Six Nations and in Mi'kmaq communities who eventually become iron workers and Anishinaabe communities that, where they become iron workers. And so there's this incredible kind of legacy that exists, whether it be the buildings themselves, the way that sovereignty and nationhood was articulated, the family and community stories and memory that was established. All this plays a critical role in the way in which Indigenous history was built and is now told to this day. Alan, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Alan Downey is a professor in the Departments of History and Indigenous Studies at McMaster University. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of FrontBurner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear FrontBurner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, the first in our series, Unmapped, that explores iconic tourist destinations through an Indigenous lens. First stop, Lenape Hoking, a.k.a. New York City. from Brent Michael David's opera called The Purchase of Manhattan. It's a well-known urban legend that Manhattan was purchased from the Lenape for beads and trinkets worth $24. But Brent's music dispels this historical myth. There's a little obelisk down in Battery Park on the very southern part of Manhattan. Um, it shows like a Lenape person shaking hands with, I'm assuming, like Peter Minuit. Uh, Peter Minuit was the director general of the Dust West India colony. They're the first colony in Manhattan, Manhattan. And they're shaking hands, and then there's a string of wampum or wampum belt hanging off of their, their clasped hands. And underneath that obelisk on the bottom the transcription, it says, Purchase of Manhattan. So the idea is that, you know, the the island of Manhattan was purchased, and the myth is $24 worth of beads, you know, is the mythology. What happened actually is that um, there was no purchase. There's one letter that this guy, a shipmate or whatever, Peter Scoggin, 
sent back to the fatherland stating that that they you know the the dutch had purchased the island of manhattan for 60 guilders and then a, a laundry list of different things like some otter skins and rum and you know such so, so many barrels of something but really that's an impossibility for a lot of reasons there's no deed ever found so there's no actual deed and this letter is just sort of hearsay you know one one sailor's thoughts about what he maybe comprehended or thought he saw so how did we get to a point where this this lie uh, turned into, you know, what appears to be a truth in the form of a physical obelisk that says this is what happened. Yeah, um, there's a lot of obelisk around, uh, but, you know, it just captures the American consciousness. And so looking at something like genocide, it's just not something Americans want to do. They don't want to look at the genocide upon which America is founded. So when I first went to uh, Lenape Center, I was I was just joining them as a volunteer, and for years I was a volunteer. So we wanted to do something artistic. And I had just been wandering around Battery Park, and I saw that obelisk, you know, with the the two shaking hands and Purchase of Manhattan written underneath. And so I just sort of raised my hand, and as a joke, I just laughingly said, let's do the Purchase of Manhattan, knowing that it's a total mythology. But a lot of, you know, a lot of people in New York actually believe it, you know. So I thought it'd be fun, you know, to just poke a stick in that bear's eye, I suppose. So then I wrote this uh, concert opera, Purchase a Manhattan. And then also we charged um, $24 as a ticket price, just tongue in cheek, owing to the mythology. Uh, The idea was to create this theatrical kind of musical work, which was very attractive. So people would like it. They would be moved by it and come to hear it. Um, And they want to pay the 24 bucks and get in to see you know, what they're thinking is the purchase of Manhattan, you know, written, composed by a Lenape composer. But then what they would hear when they get into the seats and listen to it, they would hear that the purchase of Manhattan is total mythology. It never happened. All the land was stolen. And by the way, here's some images of what happened afterwards, you know, and some of the destruction and the diaspora and the genocidal events are all sung about in this work. So, it's kind of a bait and switch in a way, like, you know, come see the purchase of Manhattan for $24, but then when you're there, you actually learn the truth, the sobering truth about what really happened. That was the idea for the purchase of Manhattan. Brent Michael Davids is a composer. We'll hear more of his myth-busting music later in the show. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, it's New York City with Indigeni Guides. Next, we make our way through Midtown Manhattan to the American Indian Community House. Our tour guide is Patricia Tarrant, Executive Director. Patricia is a member of the Mandan and Hidatsa tribes and a member of the Flint Knife Clan. We are about a block and a half away from Grand Central. So that's a pretty big landmark, about 10 blocks from Empire State Building and about four blocks from Times Square. So we're not too far off the beaten path of New York City. In an old Art Deco building on a busy street is the American Indian Community House, the A-I-C-H, or H for short. Outside, it's a rainy day. Yellow taxis drive by, drivers honk aggressively, and there's nearby construction. But inside H, 
it's a different scene. Once you in the office, you're we're pretty high up on the 20th floor, so you don't hear as much. It's not as loud, and it's definitely a break from the hustle and bustle of New York City streets. Patricia Tarrant is the executive director of H. Yeah, uh, we could definitely uh, head into the office and see what it's like in there. It's uh, this side. We're going to go to the 20th floor. The view from the 20th floor, the classic New York skyline as far as the eye can see. Uh, we have a pretty big view of Midtown Manhattan. It's a Monday around 1 p.m. and the office is quiet today. Inside H, there's sage and tobacco by the door and a hodgepodge of stickers on the walls. This one says this Indian country. Lenape's were here before and the Shinnecock and the Mohawks. It's a big, it was a big trading post. H is a hub for indigenous community and connection in the city. They hold events and workshops and do advocacy work. We're trying to be more visible in the United States in general and to have a space in Midtown, not off the beaten path, and it's not somewhere in the outskirts of New York City, that yeah, it's, it's helpful for us and our people to know that there's a place to go to, that they can be around community. This is a place Patricia's been coming to for a very long time. So I've been coming since I was a baby, and my mother worked at the community house, my brother ran the community house for a bit, and my sister worked at the community house, so it's been uh, like three generations working at the community house and being around the community and being raised by the community. She even had her baby shower at the community house, and now her daughter works here too. My daughter, she's the youth leader of our youth group, so she, and she jingle dress dances, so she comes to all the events. Definitely for her, I think it's important to be out here to know in, East, in the East Coast, know her traditions and know that, um, you know, we're still here and to be seen as a Native person. We service about 72 different Native American tribes, and that's just a small sliver of the tribes that are representing New York City, I think. On staff, we have two people from Shinnecock, Long Island. We have one from Ganawage, and then my assistant, she's Navajo from Arizona. And so it's a melting pot of Native Americans in the American, in the aged community. Uh, AACH is oh, welcome to anybody. We, we try not to have just Native-only events. We do, like, indigenous groups from South America. We've had, you know, Day of the Dead ceremonies back in the day, and we just service all indigenous people. We do a lot of um, advocacy and awareness of Native Americans. You know, New York has the largest Native urban Native population. It's about 180,000, according to the census. So, you know, we are here, but it's just hard to be seen when you're less than 1% of people here. New York City doesn't ask Native students if they're Native American. So one of our projects is asking districts to include that in the enrollment process. That way we know who these Native students are and where they're located and, you know, reaching out to those schools. We do doing presentations at schools and, you know, a lot of people don't know, like Broadway was an old Indian trail that used to, it leads to Canada, if you take it, yeah. There's a reservation in Shinnecock that's like three hours away, not too far, and people don't even know that it's right next to Southampton, one of the richest towns in New York, and a lot of people don't know the native, like, landmarks of New York City, so just spreading that awareness is important. Growing up, I didn't, they didn't teach that in school. Like, it was just the trail of tears, and then all of a sudden, natives are gone. So, 
you know, personally, my mom used to come and do presentations in school, in my classes, because they didn't have any other, you know, history to tell. Patricia's mother is Victoria Yellow Wolf Durant. She is a citizen of the Mandan and Hidatsa tribes and wanted her children to know their culture, even when it was challenging. Growing up, I, they call it walking in two worlds. I'm half white, I'm half Irish, so I do have that, um, I'm not Irish enough or I'm not native enough. And, you know, walking in two worlds is definitely a struggle sometimes, but I, I have the privilege of my mother knowing her traditions and knowing to pass down those traditions. My mother was one of the fluent speakers of her Hidatsa language, but when she was in school, she used to get beat for not knowing English. And so growing up, she didn't teach us because she didn't want us to go through the same thing she did. So um, I've been trying to learn our language, you know, as growing up, but still hard <laughs> to learn. Our main mission is Native American community. And we try to teach the traditions and cultures of New York Native Americans, and we try to make sure they're still connected to their cultures. You know, being in New York City is hard enough to be a regular person, and then being Native in New York City is 10 times harder because, you know, you don't see people every day like Natives. And I think it's important to maintain the legacy of AICH. You know, we've been around since 1969, and we've had a gallery, we had a gift shop, we've had various programs that I'm trying to, you know, revitalize and reimagine them. I think it's definitely important to maintain the legacy and for the next generation. It ain't cheap to rent space in New York. With the average rental price being $2,200 per square foot, it's one of the most expensive cities in the world. Because of that, H has bounced around to different locations more than a dozen times since its inception. And while that impacts the kind of programs they can offer from one spot to the next, they continue to be visible and accessible in a central part of the city. The space we have now is more of an office space. I think in the future I would want a performing space and like have like dance workshops and you know so people can learn how they dance at powwows. We want a computer space so um, the youth can learn how to do video editing and, you know, a kitchen to do cooking classes. And we could do workshops for, like, resume building and, you know, for high school students to show them how to get into college and, you know, what's needed. And uh, in college students, we want to do a mentorship program for, like, doctor students and undergraduates. And, you know, if we want to burden sage or do something, we don't have to worry about you know, what the building's gonna say, or like uh, the noise, or like after hours. We used to have such a big space. Uh, we had a space out in 708 Broadway. Um, it was an office space and had a big circle for performances, and then it had a kitchen for daily lunches and a food bank, and, and then on the second floor was our gallery and gift shop. So, you know, hopefully we could have that, bring that back. For now, H has its home in Midtown Manhattan, at least for another three years. Where they'll go after that is something Patricia and her team are working on. The community house is donation-based, and they get their funding from something called the Manahatta Fund. It's kind of a land tax for settlers. And it's a way of settlers giving back to Native Americans, and that's where most of our income comes from is the Manahatta Fund. And so just growing that is really important to me right now, and just to nurture it and you know hopefully one day it could be a 
we could be more economic sovereign. Patricia and the Community House are working with other nonprofits in New York City. They're trying to get reparations to get land back. The coalition is called the Land Back Action Circle. They've worked with an Indigenous artist to create a logo, a logo they hope will make non-Indigenous people see New York City a bit differently. With a part of our Land Back Action Circle, we had one of our artists, Sage Addington, she's Navajo, she designed a logo for us for Land Back, and it's uh, the Statue of Liberty as a jingle dust dancer. It's just the silhouette of the Statue of Liberty, and on the silhouette of the is a jingle dress on her. And, you know, I think it's important to indigenize these symbols of New York City. Patricia Tarrant is the executive director of the American Indian Community House, or simply H. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, Unmapped an occasional series that visits iconic travel destinations to learn about the indigenous presence there. Or should I say, listen? Here's more from Brent Michael Davids. Touching These Women is the indigenous name, Unami name, of Nora Thompson-Dean. She was a Lenape cultural treasure. She's no longer with us. She was a teacher. She had educational materials on how to make a flute, how to make moccasins, how to cook different Lenape dishes, um, how to grow Lenape traditional foods, and telling Lenape stories, cultural stories as well. Like, here's who we have been in the past. Here's who, who we are now. And she published a lot of these materials, and her her books and writings were all placed in an exhibit under glass in in the the Morgan Library and Museum in New York. And um, so I wrote this piece for the exhibit as well. So it's 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 a piece dedicated to her, and goes along with that exhibit. And um, it's performed by singers four women singers and a bunch of what I call bird roars. They're like little bird instruments. They're a flute on the end of a string that you spin around in the air and then it chirps like birds. So I had these um, bird chirping devices going and then the music is being sung and all the lyrics are her name in Unami. It, It means touching leaves woman. So literally, there's no lyrics in here except her name, broken apart, sung in strings. Um, and it's sort of like a Vivaldi's Four Seasons in a way. It, it starts out in autumn and then goes through the different four seasons, ending up on summer. And you hear a little bit of the birds here and there along the way, but in, in the summer section, you hear the birds really going all the time. And it's a very meditative kind of work. Uh, why did you want to honor Nora Thompson-Dean in this way? Because it's good to, to, you know, pay respects to people that we care about and love, you know, celebrating her life too. She's amazing, you know, when I got to learn more about what she's done, what she's accomplished. And um, so I think that's just a part of, again, you know, my mission to do interesting works that bring to light things that... Uh, people might not have known before. They might not have known about 
the mythology of the Purchase of Manhattan, and they might not have known about Nora Thompson Dean before. Um, they might not know what Lenapehoking means. So all these pieces are my effort to just bring more awareness. You know, I search for meaning in the music and try and present it in a way that it has an, uh, a real-world impact. I try to come up with ways of putting real-world meaning in there so it will affect people in a real way. Michael Davids is a composer and co-director of Lenape Center. He's Muncie, Lenape, and Mohican and enrolled in the Stockbridge Muncie community. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Come take a walk with me as part of our occasional travel series. It's called Unmapped. And today we're out and about in the homeland of the Lenape. But most people know it as New York. The city boasts some of the most magnificent public parks in the world. Others are a little more humble. Here in lower Manhattan, hidden in the shadow of skyscrapers, sits a small park. For Alan Michelson, the park stands out as a reminder of the Lenape presence in this city. Alan is a Manhattan-based Mohawk artist and a member of the Six Nations of the Grand River. For decades, his art has been uncovering Indigenous histories like this one, making the invisible visible. Unreserved producer Zoe Tennant met up with Alan to learn more. If you look at old maps, the sort of perimeter seems to vary a bit and change. I think the way to think about it is that Center Street was more or less the center of the pond, but the pond wasn't like a perfect circle or anything like that. The northern edge of it didn't quite reach Canal Street, and the southern edge of it probably went a couple streets this way. So you just imagine it expanding in, in all four directions. It's a sunny Wednesday around 3 o'clock. It's a beautiful day, it really is. It's like perfect temperature, and there's a little gentle breeze, and all the plants are swaying gently, waving gently. Alan and I are walking around Collect Pond Park. It's about the size of half a city block. And in the center of the park is a water feature, a small man-made pond with straight edges. It's a reminder of what was once here, a pond that stretched some 48 acres through lower Manhattan before New York City was a thing. It would be completely different from today. So you might get a mixture of different kind of fish and different kind of animals wetlands, there were probably ducks, and then all the insects and everything else that's associated with a pond. Canada geese or something coming through, you'd hear sounds like that, and it would be beautiful. Water lapping, it's beautiful. (laughs) And it was probably a really nice sheltered place to feast on oysters, you know? A freshwater pond in in the east has things like cattails and various aquatic plants that grow on its banks and, you know, it's surrounded by woodlands usually of some kind and they have fish and critters that live there and if there's wetlands, it's a marsh essentially. The pond is buried, so, you know, when we go down there, we're just basically walking on what used to be a pond. Sort of a grave, you know? 
the city it was just starting to really expand north, and that's why they gridded it, because they were trying to piece it off and, and develop it, really. So before then, this was probably more like the northern edge of town. And maybe they probably just thought, well, yeah, it was nice having a pond, but, you know, we could sell the land. Can't sell the pond, we can sell the land. You know, like the Lenape, it was felt to be in the way of progress, of, of the kind of city, kind of neo-Europe they were building here. That's really what happened, is that people came here from Europe with all of that culture and all of those rules and hierarchies in their minds. And they try to reproduce it here with a few variations. For over three decades, Alan's work has been making visible the invisible, uncovering and recovering indigenous presence in New York City. Like a few years ago at the Whitney Museum of American Art in Chelsea, his exhibit called back what was once there. That whole area was was once called Sapon and it seemed to have been a, a trading, fishing, and planting site. And one of the plantings was tobacco. And so we figured out a way to um, create a ring of virtual tobacco plants. It was this augmented reality. People in the museum's lobby could immerse themselves in the virtual tobacco field through an app on their phones. You could walk sort of through it, and it really changed the lobby. It's a pretty dramatic way to intervene because you can toggle between the presence of the plants or the virtual presence of the plants and their absence. It mirrors consciousness. It's vivid when it's there, and it's gone utterly when it's gone, and there's no trace of it. So there's, you know, there's something that mirrors erasure and sort of fleeting presence or memory. It became... Um, you know, a device of challenging memory. Or a couple years back at the Museum of Modern Art, PS1 in Brooklyn, Alan projected a video onto a mound of oyster shells while a recording of the Delaware skin dance played and echoed throughout the gallery space. The was called Midden, referring to the massive shell mounds made by indigenous people, known as middens. And these shell middens were all over the place because Manhattan is part of a, it's part of an archipelago that's very diverse and, and originally very diverse in its species and, it, and very rich in terms of its flora and fauna, including fish. And so that represented to me, those minutes represent to me thousands of years of presence, but also of bounty, of harvest, and, and a, a sort of nice relationship between the people and the, and the land and the waters. So, yeah, it has a lot for me. These middens date back thousands of years, and some can still be found around the city. One of them, a vast one, was along the shores of Collect Pond. It was hilly. It was probably protected. Like if you've been in New York and you know that winds off the Hudson in the winter, it's wicked, right? It's cold. So it's almost like they built their own wind, wind wall or something, you know? And I think it's interesting that they, they decided to eat their shells here because I think that the pond was probably really a beautiful place. 
One of Alan's earliest works was a place-based installation, right where this park is today. It was called Earth's Eye, and it was made from all these castings that he'd created. It was at least this wide from here to there, and maybe from here to the edge of that pond, so it was was good size. The castings told a story of the pond, before it was polluted, before the Dutch turned it into a canal, before it was filled in. So there were 40 of these sort of markers. They were about two feet long and about more than a foot wide and about six inches high, so they were also wedge-shaped. So they sloped inward and they, you know, followed the contours of the perimeter, you know, the, the shape of the pond. So I like I went I went to the Staten Island Zoo and got deer tracks. You know I did stuff like that. I even bought like antique skates and because they used to use it for skating and I and things like you know old barrels and weird weird stuff that would have been part of the not just the natural history because I also did I, that was the first time I did something with oyster shells and so some were just piled with oyster shells and some were things that were more related to its colonial life, even things like cattails and things you would see around a pond. So I tried to sort of cover all those bases. And I liked having castings because there was something, first of all, there's no style, there's no real style to a cast. It's sort of honest. It is what it is. It's almost like nature drawing itself or sculpting itself. I, I wanted that, that sort of feeling to come through. This pond, like the street signs for Canal Street, the Canal Street subway stops, all of that history, it's right here, just under the concrete. You just scratch any of these histories and you get all this, you know, uh, or I do. (laughs) There's a lot of that in New York. It's like little flashes of things. I really love New York as it is, but I I can't help but think of it as it was. And indigenous presence has been attempted to be completely erased, but, you know, we've managed to hang on. And there are supposedly, there's supposedly a, over 100,000 of us in New York. So it wasn't successful <laughs> or hard to get rid of. <laughs> Alan Michelson is a Mohawk artist and a member of the Six Nations of the Grand River. He lives in New York City, also known as... Lenape Hoking. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. Our very first in the series, Unmapped, was produced by Zoe Tennant, Kim Kasher, Rhiannon Johnson, and Laura Bonestubing. Shout out of love to Michelle Macklem for additional audio files. Head to cbc.ca slash unreserved and check out some more content from our Unmapped tour of New York. You can also download our podcast or catch us on the CBC Listen app. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.